Welcome to News and Views, a Quint original podcast where we introduce you to some of the greatest minds across different fields through in-depth interviews. But today, I don't have an interview for you. I have a really engaging debate. You are probably listening to this podcast after clicking a link on Instagram or Facebook. Or maybe uh, you found it on your YouTube recommendations. Oh, God forbid. You're getting a highly edited, out-of-context clip of this podcast on your family WhatsApp group. Whatever it may be, social media at the end of the day connects me to users like you. And I'm happy for that. I'm Raghav Behel, the editor-in-chief of The Quint. And digital media is the core of our work. So today I got together with some impeccable speakers to dig deep and ask a very basic very basic yet important question. Does social media strengthen democracy? Or in the context of this debate, putting forward the motion, the motion is social media strengthens democracy. Speaking for the motion were Congress MP and veteran writer Shashi Tharoor, along with Carnegie India scholar Anirudh Suri. And speaking against the motion were former national spokesperson for the Congress party, Sanjay Jha, and Australian journalist Antoinette Latouf. The debate was held at the 13th edition of Tata Literature Live, a literature festival in Mumbai. We had the live audience vote and trust me, the verdict will surprise you. So let's jump straight into the debate. But before we move further, make sure to check out other episodes of News and Views and other Quint podcasts like uh, Urdu Nama, Do I Like It? and Siyasat on your preferred podcast app. Now, let's fly to Mumbai, shall we? The, the debate will be won by that side which swings the opinion of this house more than just the absolute numbers. So remember, it's the swing uh, which is important. So let's start. Let's start by first getting the sense of the House on whether people in this House support the motion that social media strengthens democracy or they don't. So will people who support please put up their green card? So I think it's agreed that it is 75-25. 75 support the motion in this House that social media strengthens democracy. Now, at the end of this debate, we will figure out whether 75 has 75-25 is 80-20, in which case four wins, or it is 70-30, in which case, despite the fact that 70 people support the motion against wins, because they swung the vote. Those are the rules. So, uh, I think we are ready to start. And uh, the first speaker for the proposition is uh, Anirudh. Would you go, Anirudh? And we will be quite strict with the time. So, uh, at seven minutes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, an important housekeeping announcement first. Please do not turn off your phones. Put on your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram apps. And start tweeting, posting on Instagram about at least what Mr. Thurur and I are saying. So that social media strengthens democracy. <laughs> I'm going to start today by laying out uh, the historical context for this debate. Democracy might have originated in Greece, it might have originated in the villages of ancient India, but regardless of its origin, it's clear that democracy has had a long-drawn process, long-drawn journey to its modern-day Aftar. No state, no polity, 
ever has achieved that end state, that utopian perfect democracy. So it's clear, ladies and gentlemen, that democracy is a journey, it's not an endpoint. Centuries ago, Gutenberg, the printing press invented by Gutenberg, impacted the spread of democracy. More recently, technologies like the television, the radio, and the newspaper have done the same. And social media, the other piece of our debate topic today, is the latest in a series of technologies, often mass media technologies, that have shaped democracy. We must therefore, in today's conversation, today's debate, evaluate the impact of social media on democracy within this broader historical long-term context. Having said that, I'll focus my arguments today on two key pieces. One, does social media strengthen democratic values? And two, does social media strengthen democratic institutions? On democratic values, there are several, but I believe the paramount one is freedom. And on that, I believe social media delivers. Social media today allows a billion Indians to express themselves freely, to get access to information they wouldn't have otherwise had access to, to debate with people that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to debate with. And I don't have to quote the various examples of grassroots citizens' movements that have been enabled by social media around the world. Unlike broadcast media, where there was one institution typically that would control who would post what, social media lets all of us post content. And that's the key difference we've got to keep in mind. Is social media perfect? No. But does it have to be perfect to strengthen democracy? I believe no. Were earlier technologies or media perfect? No. We should not, in today's debate, hold social media to a very, very high, unreasonably impossible standard. We should evaluate it on the basis of whether it's advancing us on that journey of democracy, not whether it's leading us to this perfect utopian democracy. If elections and universal franchise rights, when they were given to everyone in democratic countries, to me that was spreading democracy. Social media, on the other hand, to me is deepening democracy. It's giving the right of speech, the right of expression, the right to debate to everyone. And that, in turn, is making our universal franchise rights that much more meaningful. After all, I can exercise my right to vote that much better once I have that much more information and after I've debated the pros and cons of the candidates in front of me, for example. Let me now move to the second piece. How is social media impacting democratic institutions? The four institutional pillars of any strong, vibrant democracy, the media, the executive, the legislature, and the, and the judiciary, are typically evaluated on a few parameters like transparency, accountability, and checks and balances. Let's evaluate the impact of social media on the judiciary, for example. Recently, as some of you might know, video coverage of court proceedings has now been made accessible to all. I want all of us to pause for a second and think about that. Historically, one of the most closed-off institutions, one of the most opaque institutions where decisions concerning your lives, my lives, your rights, my rights, were taken behind closed doors. But even an institution like that now is finally moving away from making decisions behind closed doors. If having wider access to our judicial proceedings and more information about our electoral candidates improves transparency and accountability by even 1%, ladies and gentlemen, then today we all have to believe that social media is strengthening democracy. Just like the Gutenberg Press centuries ago opened up the vaulted access to religious texts and unleashed a religious and social transformation, I believe today social media will help us move further along on that long historical arc of our democratic journey. 
Mind you, social media is no panacea. And despite being a tech entrepreneur, tech venture capitalist, I believe that no technology, for sure, can ever be a panacea to society's ills. The opposition today might argue that there's so much disinformation, but that disinformation was there even in the era of broadcast media. What's more important today is that we develop the critical skills to evaluate whatever information is being thrown at us by social media or otherwise, evaluate it critically. And that will create a more discerning population, which in turn will make sure that democracy as a whole is better off. Let me leave you with one last personal thought on how social media is advancing democracy. Social media, very crucially, is helping us all today build micro-communities. It could be WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups on Twitter or on Instagram, groups of friends, colleagues, family members, whom we might have otherwise lost touch with. I can tell you personally, during this whole crisis of COVID, it was these micro-communities, WhatsApp groups, that actually stepped in when government institutions were crumbling under the pressure of the pandemic for me personally as well. And these micro-communities are not just adding to our well-being and our happiness, they're also increasing our levels of engagement and awareness with our society and our politics. They're becoming our new town squares, our new village nookers, our speakers' corners. And that's why I believe, ladies and gentlemen, and submit to all of you, that social media strengthens democracy. Thank you. So, uh, Anirodh, Anirudh, I have a question to ask you. You did uh, speak about values and institutions. You talked about these two as the, you divided your arguments between the two of them. I put to you one point that I don't think you adequately address, and therefore it'd be good to hear your thoughts. When institutions... I've got to leave something for <laughs> Mr. Tharoor. Uh, democratic instruments work when institutions that empower them, institutions that protect them, work. <laughs> Now, all over the world, we are seeing these institutions weakening, not just in India, even in the West. We see institutions of fair play, governance, all of them weakening. When those instruments are not able to protect democracy, can social media uh, ensure that the positives of social media triumph because the protective institutions are weakening themselves? Thank, thanks, Raghav. So, I, I, a couple of thoughts. So, one, I believe that in, in our history, we've gone through various cycles of centralization and decentralization. You look at any era, there are attempts to centralize power, and then there's usually a grounds up movement to decentralize power again, right? And so we're going through this uh, pendulum or this spectrum, I think, time and time again. And I think that's what we are today also part of, right? So when we say that democratic institutions are weakening, they're weakening for several reasons. Sometimes they've not served the people well as well. I, in fact, in my book also talk about this, that a lot of times when you talk about the Web3 movement or the internet, a lot of these tech-driven movements were designed to take power away from democratic institutions because they were getting too, decent, too, too centralized. So I actually think that we shouldn't blindly say that when democratic institutions are weakening, that that's a bad thing. Sometimes that could be a good thing, as long as the power is actually devolving down to the people or the local institutions. So social yeah. media is actually enabling all of us to build those micro-communities. So even when the centralized institutions are failing or struggling, we are stepping in as members of a democracy to support our own polity, our society. Thank you, Anirudh. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Uh, well, we now have uh, Sanjay Jha. Uh, you've all known Sanjay to be so aggressive on television. First speaker for the opposition. Uh, with due apologies to my friend Anirudh, kindly uh, put your phones on silent or switch it off. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, do you know that 
Jesus Christ just opened an account on Twitter. And the chief tweet has just verified it. <laughs> Joining that August list is George Washington. And I assume Mahatma Gandhi is in the queue. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that today's discussion is not about whether this side wins or that side wins. 75% of you already seem to have made up your mind. God bless you. <laughs> but I want to make this point here, that this evening is about you. Therefore, I want to be very explicit in taking a position. I speak against the motion because I believe democracy is not just in danger. It is dying and it should concern us all. On October 28th, 2022, just 10 to 12 days ago, a man went and knocked on the doors of the San Francisco home of Nancy Pelosi, who happens to be the US House Speaker. She wasn't there, she was in Washington. Her husband, Paul Pelosi, was there. The intruder went on to hammer his skull with a hammer and as we talk, he is in a hospital recuperating. The intention of this man was to send Nancy Pelosi to Washington with a broken kneecap, kidnapped, and on a wheelchair. Now, why was this man demonstrating such violent manifestations? Because for two years since Joe Biden's victory, he was convinced that the election was stolen. Look at the consequences. Now, that's not where the story ends. Conspiracy theorists took over. With due respect, some of them were right-wing, lunatic, fringe ones. Guess what they said? They said Paul Pelosi was having a homosexual love affair with the husband of Nancy Pelosi. Don't even try and visualize it. Take it easy. <laughs> and the allegation was that they were both wearing underwears. Trash. Guess who retweeted one of those with a comment saying, this could be true. You want to take a guess, ladies and gentlemen? Oh man, you're a genius, vote for us. Elon Musk retweeted that. So if Twitter has to suspend the account of anybody today, it must start with the chief twit who bought it for $44 billion and as we talk, has announced bankruptcy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you want evidence? And we should be worried about that. This is not the time to make anodyne statements and motherhood and apple pie, you know, rhetoric about what social media can do. Let's bite the bullet here. The truth is that Facebook admitted publicly that the election of 2016, when Hillary Clinton lost the election, 146 million users of Facebook were American citizens. Guess how many people vote in an American election? Close to 145. So basically, Moscow can deploy bots, which then ensure that an orange-haired man gets into the White House and can, his, can have his finger on the nuclear buttons. If that is not democracy going rogue, what is? And guess who fueled that? Social media did. Think for a moment that big digital public square, ladies and gentlemen, is somewhere like if you see in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones, you remember the marketplace and where there's a swordsman swashbuckling around and suddenly Harrison Ford comes and gives him a shot and all hell breaks loose? That's exactly what you're going to get if Mark Zuckerberg gets off from the wrong side of the bed, as does Elon Musk. Do we want our democracy's future to be in such a state? Fake news, the biggest danger to democracy, disinformation, political manipulation, political surveillance, micro-targeting. We are all living in echo chambers. 
in America on race, in India on communalism. We are all worse off as a result of that. Which brings me to the last point. In the next one minute, I'll try and wrap that up. There are three elements that play a big role. Big corporate, the big tech. I mean, they are here to make money. That's their prime motivation is profit. Number two, the politician, he will love polarization. And that's a new trend. Because when you polarize society, you look at the demographics, and you say, if the majority come with me, that suits my game. The third player is someone we don't often talk about, is the role of mainstream media, which is actually enjoying the benefits of both polarization and profits. Ask me, I'm pretty often on 9 p.m. primetime shows. If US is Fox, in India, you have the barbs of Fox sitting here. <laughs> and, and therefore, let me wrap up. There's a fourth element that I haven't told you about. That's you and me. That's us. Because we have a choice that we can make. So my last line, ladies and gentlemen, on the ballot is secularism. On the ballot is our constitution of every country in the world. On the ballot is inclusiveness. And last but not the least, ladies and gentlemen, on the ballot is democracy. Thank you very much. Sanjay, um, you made a very strong assertion right at the beginning. And a lot of your arguments sprung from that assertion. Uh, and I'll quote you, you said, democracy is dying. That, that, that is a very strong assertion. By corollary interpretation, that means dictatorships are now strengthening. Uh, authoritarianism is strengthening. I, I, I put to you that when there was no social media in a non-digital era, you know, the voice of protest against authoritarianism used to be the anonymous graffiti. Someone coming overnight and putting something on the wall and those would start revolutions. So I now put to you that in the digital era, that function of the anonymous graffiti has been taken over by social media. And therefore, that is one instrument through which the strongest authoritarian regimes can be overthrown. What could then be negative about that? Uh, Raghav, you know, it's a human uh, sentiment. It's a human condition to be optimistic. You know, I'm on social media. I'm not going away anywhere at the moment. No way. But the truth is that social media was supposed to be an enabler of democracy. Unfortunately, because of the abuse by politicians, I believe, it has now become a disabler of democracy. Let me give an example. 70% of Republicans in the US believe that the election was stolen in 2020. That's why somebody came to kill Nancy Pelosi. You know, BBC Online did an investigation and they did it through a sting operation to find out what kind of fake information is going out during the midterm elections. And you guess what they found, Raghav? They found women in particular were targeted, women political leaders. Uh, people like Michelle Obama, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and obviously Nancy Pelosi, they were made out to be vile, vicious, part of some child sex prostitution racket, and uh, you know, performing sex acts. I mean, that's how bizarre we have become. And think about it, ladies and gentlemen, that you have a WhatsApp university in India. Sashi has been a victim to that significantly. And you have PhDs in it. You have PhDs in WhatsApp university. Are we discussing today the fact that Bilkis Banu's rapists are walking free? To me, that's the real problem that we should be talking about. We are not. And I think that's the problem that we face today. I mean, I agree okay. with you that democratic institutions can be saved. Social media is here to stay. Good or bad, Twitter or no Twitter. Okay. But the truth remains, we must recognize its dangers. That's all. Fair enough. Uh, thank you, Sanjay. And now the second speaker for uh, the proposition, Dr. Shashi Tharoor. You know, after hearing the first two speakers, I think I can uh, 
I'm really reminded of what the British Conservative Party says to its prime ministers. I shall not keep you long. I think, I think it's, it's a pretty slam dunk sort of discussion here today. Because Sanjay, my dear friend, I have good news for you and bad news. The good news is I can concede all your arguments, every point you made. The bad news is none of that actually disproves our argument that social media still strengthens democracy. I mean, the fact is, you know, anything, literally anything can be used positively or negatively, right? So without fire, we couldn't cook, we couldn't build and so on, but fire can also burn down your house. Uh, you, you, you know, cars were an invention that dramatically speeded transport around the world, but, you know, every New Year's Eve, we have people getting drunk behind the wheel and killing people in car accidents. Just as burning down the house doesn't tell us to uninvent fire, I've got to ask Sanjay, would he uninvent the wheel? by following this kind of example. The truth is things can be misused and we accept that social media can be misused. But just as an arsonist is not the best argument against fire, so also I must say a Trumpist psycho isn't the best argument against social media. <laughs> First, as you already hinted, we had a demonstration of the usefulness of social media during the COVID pandemic. We all know how it helped disseminate information about the transmission of the virus, how to avoid its spread, uh, all sorts of information about containment zones, preventive measure, measures, hygiene practices, all of that. Um, it helped aid. It helped us get aid across to those stranded by the virus. Many individuals sought assistance through social media. I'm, as an MP, I was deluged with requests from people from my constituency and elsewhere who were stuck in a variety of foreign countries and needed help and reached out through social media. And I was able to help get them home with the help of the government, of course. But the truth is, individuals demanded accountability from the state, demanded, for example, help for migrant workers, which eventually came after they were walking there. Transport was arranged because of pressure through social media. They weren't, there couldn't be demonstrations on the streets during the lockdown. Social media is what got the word across. We've seen the way in which decentralized, leaderless, and yet highly organized popular protests have transformed so many countries brought democracy through the Jasmine Revolution to countries like Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Syria. In fact, Hong Kong had a terrific example of that when in fact the Chinese cracked down on the, on the first physical protest. What happened was that they, they realized that they couldn't do it that way. The so-called umbrella movement of 2014 was crushed. Instead, they started moving to social media and they were organizing extremely effectively uh, decentralized demonstrations against the Chinese using social media to coordinate anonymously and at the same time uh, spinning off in small groups, the micro-communities Anurud spoke about, in order to get message across, telegram chats, crowdfunding campaigns were raised through social media to help these protesters. Uh, Apple's airdrop function got them to send messages to each other without, while bypassing the, the state, uh, the snooping state of China. GitHub hubs, GitHub pages, compiled video feeds and got word out to, to various people. So protesters were able to use social media effectively and they also used it to gauge public opinion. The things they're doing were elicited a hostile reaction, they were able to back off from it. Mass movements around the world have used social media. Black Lives Matter, the anti-CAA protests in our country, the Movement America for Stronger Gun Control Laws, uh, Occupy Wall Street, uh, the abortion rights issue in recent U.S. elections that actually gave the Republicans a much worse result than they'd expected was entirely because of social media getting the word across, multiplying the voices of the voiceless, raising awareness across. 
In turn, governmental institutions have become more accountable because of social media. The centralization of power that Anirudh was referring to has absolutely gone down. Now you've got a situation where you have a problem on a train, you can tweet the railway minister. Uh, we've had famous cases of, of, of our external affairs minister, Sushma Swaraj, responding to people stranded abroad who lost their passports or, 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 or had those stolen. I've had an example just recently where a, a father couldn't get admission to Ames for a baby who had an extremely time-sensitive operation needed that could only be done at Ames, and, and, and the baby was literally going to die. He tweeted me. I immediately called the, the, the minister's office and said, look at this tweet. Why aren't you helping? And, and the baby was given admission at Ames. And there have been many, many other such cases that I've been able to use my social media presence to help all sorts of strangers who reached out that way. So building public trust has forced uh, a government to introduce more levels of transparency and accountability than ever before, and it's permitted two-way communication between citizens and their government. And yes, Sanjay is right, I've been a victim of it myself. Not everything that comes out is either fair or reasonable or even accurate. There can be a lot of bile out there, because what's happened is that social media has permitted the outsider to also be heard in the narrative. Narratives have traditionally been dominated by insiders, by elites, and for the first time, the outsider gets to have their voice heard. And I believe that's something we've seen throughout social media, even in the now banned TikTok. People actually got all sorts of content out that they would never otherwise have been able to bring to an audience. So finally, just because social media isn't utopian, Sanjay, you're right, and it can't cure all the ills of democracy, it doesn't mean that it's dystopian danger either. The fact is, it does, at the end of the day, have a specific impact, weakens the elites, and deepens democracy. Thank you very much. Shashi, uh, in, in, in a politically, socially conflicted situation, where there's a conflict, the concept of absolute truth melts away. Truth becomes relative. Someone's insurgent is someone's freedom fighter. In such a situation, where there is a so conflicted situation that everyone's got free for all to say what they want to, whose truth prevails such that social media strengthens democracy? Who decides which truth should prevail, which truth should be allowed to go through? Because that is at the core of whether social media will strengthen or not. Not really, Raghav, because the truth is that no one knows at the end of the day what matters to strengthen democracy except what the public wants. I mean, this whole cliche of democracy being something of the people, by the people, for the people, etc. If the majority of the people believe a certain thing and they vote accordingly, they will prevail. I mean, we're seeing that in our current central government. It doesn't mean that they have uh, what they've been advocating is actually true. In many cases, it's a particular way of looking at reality. But apparently, enough of the public is bought into it. And you can't say that's undemocratic. The truth is that we on the other side may have a different point of view. But we've got to persuade the public through social media and other means that we are right. Otherwise, we cannot prevail in a democracy. The issue is, does it strengthen democracy? I believe it still does. And I might add that uh, since Sanjay had talked about uh, Gandhiji as an example of somebody who wouldn't have used social media, let me assure him that Mahatma Gandhi would have done very well on Twitter. Most of his lines were actually short and pithy and well under 280 characters. Work is worship. My life is my message. I mean, you know, he was made for the social media era. Yeah, that would be quite a thing to give uh, uh, the Mahatma uh, a Twitter handle. Uh, and of course, with the chief twit, uh, Elon Musk there, the outcome, totally unpredictable.
<laughs> which way it would go. Uh, all right, uh, last speaker, uh, and she speaks uh, uh, for the opposition, uh, that's uh, Antonia Latouf. So it's not often that a woman gets the last word. I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> so the, the clearest way to understand why social media has wreaked havoc on democracy is when you examine two things. So firstly, the ongoing impacts of misinformation, disinformation, even malinformation, it's often rolled into one, fake news. What that has, the ongoing impact it has on individual beliefs, actions, and the fact that it's eroding trust in democratic institutions um, or pillars of democracy like the media. And secondly, the fact that we are really in an algorithmic race to the bottom, there's no end in sight, and there are no clear avenues to hold these social media behemoths to account. But I want to begin by assuring you all that you can trust me, and you should, because I am a journalist. <laughs> We're synonymous with trust these days, aren't we? Okay, so most people are loathing of the news media. Many say they find it belittling, divisive, depressing, overly negative. Um, and as you can imagine, this makes people like me very popular at dinner parties. And you may be thinking that people have never been really fond of the press. Over the last decade, though, their disdain for the media establishment has reached new levels. Social media is being used and abused by tech companies for profit and authoritarian regimes for control. This leads to democratic values being severely compromised. While social media was hailed as a vehicle to give a voice to the voiceless, and it sounds like, it sounds lovely in theory, like a big warm hug, but its actual impact is more like a blow to the heart of our democracy. That's because social media power is not shared among the people, for the people. It's in the hands of tech giants, autocrats, and other bad faith operators. Whereas traditional media, when it's reputable, independent, and operates well, they've served as guardians of democracy by safeguarding fact and truth in public discourse. But social media outlets allow for widespread disinformation of false, divisive, and often destructive information. It is the very basis of their business model. Clicks and interactions are provided by news feeds that are catered for you on things you have clicked on before to keep you scrolling, to reinforce your existing worldview. What could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot has gone wrong, and I'll explain over the next few minutes. As my colleague Sanjay has argued, platforms like Twitter and Facebook have created a toxic online culture that degrades public discourse and promotes ideological echo chambers that increases partisanship and hostility between those with opposing political or social views. When it comes to journalism, this in the, well, in the various forms of fake news, um, it's been weaponized and it's an assault on social cohesion, and it's an assault on trust in democratic institutions. So, because not only does fake news lead to poor judgment and decision-making, it also exerts a lingering influence on people's reasoning after it's been corrected. That's known as the continued influence effect. It shapes people's views and actions even after the information's been discredited because it instills a vivid emotional reaction and it builds on existing narratives. The impacts are damaging, they're divisive, they are long-lasting. Even in searching for data on social cohesion and democracy, I had to wade through a whole heap of shitty websites like with names like Webwise and Everfy.net. Don't know what on earth, like who on earth curates those, but the next three search results were all Facebook press releases from Meta's corporate spin doctors. 
Social media does not empower the voiceless and powerless, but rather provides a cyber platform for the continued assault of the marginalised. So research I commissioned with an organisation, a charity I co-founded in Australia, Media Diversity Australia, found that marginalised groups, be it ethnic minorities, people with a disability, women, LGBTQI plus people, they're far more likely to face harassment, threats, bullying online, um, and which, and it's spilling over and having real-world impacts. It is having a silencing effect. I'll be exploring the near-impossible task of quantifying the growing damage bill caused by social media, and crucially, the lack of governance online. So, in theory, it was meant to strengthen democracy by giving everybody a platform. That's a nice theory. But authoritarian regimes broke up to that threat posed by pro-democracy online opposition, and they've de de developed a suite of tools to confront this, including offline responses, imprisoning bloggers, changing liability laws, restricted access to online, like the Great Firewall of China, or trying to influence the online conversation. The last response led to the development of political bots and trolls. These are ongoing threats to democracy, as we've seen those with specific interests, including politicians and nations such as Russia, leaders like Trump, the Iranian regime, they seek to, dis to disrupt the democratic process and use social media to promote their own interests. Lawmakers are reeling with the questions, how do you prevent the spread of digital political propaganda and protect citizens' personal privacy online? But the borderless nature of the internet makes this an impossible task. A website might be hosted in one country, operated in staff by another, with comments left in readers in a third country, which poses the thorny question, how do you police lies? Internet users can access content created all across the world and is often impossible to tell where it originated from. Social media has outpaced regulatory initiatives. This is why we need to look beyond the spin that suggests social media is for the people, that it is a leveller, that it gives a voice to the voiceless. It's, it's a fallacy because power is still wielded in the hands of a dangerous few, tech giants. Its message is manipulated by autocrats and the victims continue to be society's most powerless. And we have a greater propensity towards violence. But hey, on the upside, we can now share more selfies with the world. Perhaps one of the strong arguments that you've made is that you don't trust the algorithms of these tech companies, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, you don't, Twitter. Uh, in fact, you almost seem to suggest that they are fixed in a particular direction and therefore arguments which are not constructive or not fair get amplification. In your, in your journalism, have you encountered such biased algorithms? Have you, uh, can you share an example of something that you thought was being engineered by an algorithm? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. It's how COVID misinformation or disinformation spread so widely. Uh, it's how, how we saw even in the United States, how politics is so much more polarised because the algorithm is fueled to keep you scrolling, to keep you on there. So if you are continuing to click on anti-abortion articles or things that suggest bleach, uh, drinking bleach cures you of COVID, the attempt isn't to correct the information or direct you to credible sources. It's to keep you engaged. It's to keep you scrolling. That is the very basis of how these... In any issue, it's why we do have these echo chambers. It's why there isn't nuance. It's why there is a greater propensity to vote towards violence. It's why it's undermining our democratic institutions. Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are not for the people. They're not providing a platform and a voice for the people. They are profiting off enormous amounts of times that we spend online. 
Social media has only made them more powerful and richer. It is not. It's not giving resources, time and platform for women, for ethnic minorities, for political minorities, for people with disability, for the queer community. It is still rich, straight white men who are calling the shots. <laughs> well, that was the first uh, opening arguments uh, made by each speaker. Now we get into the rebuttal round. So Anirudh, you go with your two minutes. So let me, uh, let me go in the order that you spoke so that uh, we'll still have the last word, Antoinette, um, for you. Um, so Sanjay, you spoke, uh, obviously I, I don't disagree, I, I don't agree with your assertion that democracy is dying. I think that was not followed with any real facts or evidence, I believe. I don't think that um, that piece is that substantial in your arguments. I think the piece that you mentioned uh, which I do want to rebut is that democracy is being hurt because of social media and elections are often being rigged by using social media. If you think about how elections have happened in the absence of social media, do we have any evidence to say that elections have not been rigged earlier? Of course they have. Social media, as Mr. Thurur also said, is not going to be a panacea. I said that as well. We are not looking at it as the solution for everything that ails our democracy. So just because it was used once doesn't mean that in the long run, as I was mentioning, in a larger historical context, it will continue to hurt. I think those problems are getting fixed. So that's one. The second piece I'll address is maybe around the big tech government media and the citizens piece that you uh, spoke about, Sanjay. I think that the citizens and media are, in fact, to me, uh, coming together. They're actually, through social media, becoming that one node that can keep the big tech firms and governments in balance. Otherwise them colluding together would actually become impossible for citizens to fight. Antoinette, um, you spoke about social media power is largely in the hands of tech giants. You've seen it in Australia as well, you're from the news world. When Facebook tried to ban, uh, sorry, not pay the news organizations, the first thing that the Australian government said, you can leave. Anirudh, you need to wrap up. I'll Your just wrap up. up. And the first thing that happened post that was Microsoft stepped in and said, if Google is leaving, we will bring in Microsoft Bing. And so you see how competition between big tech firms can actually be leveraged so that big tech firms don't remain as powerful as we think they okay, are. Okay, Anirudh, you wrap up now. Thank you very much. Sanjay, your rebuttal. Okay. Um, my time begins now, so I'm waiting for the clock to start, but I'll take advantage till it comes on. Uh, Sashi very cleverly mentioned that I was thinking of Trumpism. He ignored that there are maybe some people closer to home I may be referring to. Uh, uh, let us call it as he who cannot be named. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm referring to the Harry Potter Lord Voldemort. A resemblance to anyone living or dead is purely coincidental. Uh, a point, and again, because both of you said very similar stuff, social media is not free, Anurudh and Sashi. It is, uh, you know, we are exercising self-censorship. You know, what you're talking about is utopian. I mean, that's the way it was meant to be. I'll concede that point, but it is not. I mean, today, people are scared of FIRs. They're scared of defamation suits. They're scared of trolls and threats. My other point is that, you know, we keep saying democratization. To be honest, I think the real democratization is not about giving everyone an internet access, but it's about providing less discrimination in our society. That will be the real discrimination. <clears throat> you know, why against caste? We're talking of religion. 
you know, the issues here should be about education, healthcare, poverty, you know, the whole, there are bigger issues in democratization. And I agree with you that yes, there must be a voice, but we need to recognize that there are fundamental challenges that we need to kind of live with. My third point and my last point probably will be that at the end of the day, the, the platform has become a freedom to hate and divide. And I believe that in a multicultural, pluralistic society like ours, with the kind of political players we have, Sashi is a rare exception, I think we are asking for trouble. So I would say last line, Sanjay, before you up, jump please. on me, Raghav, I think we are in deep peril. And I'm using the word peril, not another word, because that word would cause a lot of stink. Thank you. Thank you, Sanjay. <laughs> Your rebuttal round. Well, my friend Sanjay wants us to believe that people are going around being scared of defamation suits. I can assure you, given the glacial pace at which our court system works, they're not. <laughs> I, filed a, I filed a defamation suit seven years ago against a certain anchor about whom the nation doesn't want to know anymore. And <laughs> it still hasn't been heard, okay? So that, that's our system. Let, let me just say that... Uh, Sanjay says very piously that there are bigger issues than democratization, poverty, and so on. Sure, but Sanjay, the debate is about democracy. Does social media strengthen democracy or not? We can discuss poverty and pluralism and every other P anytime you like. But this is about democracy, and the fact is democracy has brought in much greater transparency into our system. It's forced governments and institutions to concentrate on building public trust because social media has forced them to implement new levels of, of transparency and accountability to the public. And don't forget with Sanjay, it's the guy who wants you to silence your mobile phones was talking about protecting democracy, right? <laughs> Sanjay, it's a voice we want, not silence. Okay, uh, Antoinette, uh, I, I, I take everything that you're saying uh, very seriously, uh, of course. Uh, one must, one must uh, uh, respect that, but the honest truth is that even as a journalist, you know that the existing traditional media did have lots of barriers to entry. Getting anything published in the media is not easy. There's a cost of publishing. There's, there's barriers to cross, reaching editors, all sorts of verification processes. Social media has neutralized all that and given a voice to all sorts of people. In India, for example, far from the elites, people in tier, tier two and tier three cities have been the biggest users and biggest gainers of social media. TikTok, for example, when it was monetized, it was people with incomes of less than 20,000 rupees a month who were the biggest gainers of this. And finally, it's great that the woman got the last word, but it doesn't really mean that she's right. <laughs> <laughs> Antoinette, you do have the last word now. Oh, I think we, we often hear about Black Lives Matter and these movements that, are, that were online. And yes, they trended. Yes, they got the conversation going. But we need to ask how much material change was there after the movement, after it stopped being something that was trendy and people spoke about. In Australia, for example, things for our black community have gotten worse. Indigenous deaths in custody have increased. They doubled in 2021. Black people were the most likely to die from COVID. So sometimes we like to think, I think the elites like to think that these movements have, have shifted power, but they were viral hashtags. And I question the real world impacts and I question how much has shifted. Um, also, WhatsApp. WhatsApp was spoken about as though it's some great leveller and equaliser. In my community, in the sort of the Arabic-speaking community of, of Australia, all COVID did was spread misinformation rampantly. So much so that Middle Eastern Australians born in the Middle East were 10 times more likely to die from COVID than anyone else. 
they were sharing their research on WhatsApp. We heard the analogy that fire, it may burn a house, um, you know, but fire has many other good, you know, we use it for, many, for much good, but our democracy, because of social media, in, is in ashes. Reason is going up in flames. I've done my research is the accelerant that has absolutely um, taken away, it, 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 it absolutely taken away any reason, it undermines fact, it undermines our democratic process, um, and I think people spend, far, people spend far too much time online, um, it's making us more polarised, it's doing far more damage to society, and you have to question, are the powerless getting any more power? Thank you. Well, so, so you've heard four extremely intelligent arguments put in about nine and a half minutes each. I've been asked to sum, do a summary. I don't think that's that's relevant or important after you've heard uh, for such fine expositions. I just want to end with what I think, uh, you know, this whole debate, uh, as I said at the beginning, is evolutionary. It hasn't found its end point yet because the right and the wrong are so enmeshed in it. I think it falls between two axioms. One axiom is that, of course, social media is good for democracy because it gives voice. But when the evil starts and the institutions do not have the power to uh, correct or curb the evil, that then is where the problem starts. So in the reality, as it evolves over the years, as civilizations come to grip with this phenomenon, it's, it's in between these two axioms we'll find out whether it's right or wrong, evil or good. Uh, that's the end of the debate. We will now see the House give us their sense again. So those who uh, still support the motion, please put up your cards, the green cards. You know, uh, I have a faint suspicion the number is slightly lower than last time. Can we see the red cards? Can we see the red card? E well, well. <laughs> this was then an easy decision. I think the reds have it. <laughs> the reds have it. I, think, I think Sanjay and Antoinette swung the sense of the house. And of course, the people for the proposition put up some brilliant arguments. Thank you very much, everybody, for a lovely evening. So, as you heard, according to the Janta Janardhan, the audience present in our debate, social media does not, in fact, strengthen democracy. Let us know if you agree or disagree with the verdict. Thank you for listening to this episode of News and Views. And as ironic as it may sound, do DM us on Instagram and tell us what issues you want us to talk about in order to strengthen democracy. This was Raghav, and I'll see you in the next one. News and Views is a Quint original podcast, executive produced by Shelley Walia and Ritu Kapoor. This episode was hosted by Raghav Behel, produced and edited by Prateek Lidu, with theme music from BMG. And a special thanks to our guests, Shashi Tharoor, Anirudh Suri, Sanjay Jha, and Antoinette Latouf. You were listening to The Quinn's Podcast.